message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, here we are today in the final chapter of Zechariah's prophecy. Chapter 14, and after we complete this study, there will actually be only one more of the twelve minor prophets for us to study through. Uh, In the last several years, we've systematically uh, gone through each one of the twelve minor prophets. So Malachi will actually be the final prophecy of the final twelve prophets of the Old Testament that we'll study the end of this year. We're going to look at a couple of other New Testament letters uh, between now, next Sunday, and then uh, probably November, and we'll look at Malachi here at the end of this year. But here we are today in Zechariah, so in preparation for this final chapter, I want you to see the title of the message today, Destined for Holiness. The Bible speaks about holiness quite a bit, about the Christian life, about sanctification, about uh, pursuing holiness as a lifestyle. But here's what I want to do in introduction for that to just kind of get our minds thinking. If I were to say right now, I'm going to say it and I want to see how everyone responds. I'm going to, I'm going to say two words and I'm going to ask you to fill in the missing word to the sentence, okay? God is... Hold up, hold up. We got multiple answers here. We got God is good. We got God is great. Did I hear God is love? Did I hear that? Okay. You know what I didn't hear? Well, before I before I share that, if you ask just random question, what are some characteristics of God? Here's what you will most likely get. There's always exceptions. But you most likely would hear God is love. God is good. God is gracious or merciful. God is patient. God is kind. God is forgiving. You might even hear God is righteous or God is just. But you know what will probably not make the top five? Maybe the top ten? God is holy. God is holy. And I would argue, from a biblical perspective, I would argue that God's holiness is His primary characteristic. Because I would also argue that God's holiness fuels all the other attributes. Why is God loving? Because He's holy. Why is He gracious and merciful? It's because He's holy. Why is He righteous and just? Because He's holy. This is why, as we'll mention at the end of the message today, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 12 and verse 14, will actually say, Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see God. It's my contention... That holiness, while I believe it is the primary attribute of God, is one of the 
most neglected considerations when people think of who God is. And I, and I know that may be just, you know, I offer that as my personal perspective. It may or may not be true. I think there's some truth to it at least. Um, but I believe from what I read in Scripture, what I've experienced and how I understand who God is, I believe His holiness is of the utmost importance. And if it's important in God, I believe it's important to us. It should be important to us. So, having said those things, just by way of introduction, I'm going to read the 21 verses that we find here in chapter 4 of Zechariah. The words will be on the screen for you to follow along if you'd like to. Uh, you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Here's how the prophecy of Zechariah concludes as he's pointing us forward to the coming day of the Lord. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will, not, will, will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses 
the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you will take this word that we've read and you will open up our minds and give us understanding, open our hearts that we'd be submissive to your word and help us be obedient to what you tell us so that you'll be glorified. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this text is difficult. Some commentators, some writers have called this one of the most difficult portions of Zechariah. In fact, they will say that Zechariah itself is a difficult book. And this chapter of Zechariah is a difficult chapter. Martin Luther, when reading this chapter, actually said, I don't know what's going on. And so people way smarter than me have come to this and been a little confused as they began to study. So don't if you, if you heard me read that and you followed the words and you thought, okay, I don't really know what's going on here, don't feel bad because... We're going to get through it with the help of the Holy Spirit of God. There are four things, four distinct subjects in this chapter that help us to see the future of God's day. Uh, we have to remember from the last chapter, Zechariah is pointing us ahead. He's looking forward even to the end when Israel will be treated differently by the Lord. And so in just, just in this one chapter, there's four different uh, aspects of God in Christ that we see that will help us, I believe, help us understand how does this apply to me? What, what am I supposed to do when I read this and, and as I seek understanding that the, the Spirit of God will give us, okay, even if I understand it, what am I supposed to do with it? Right? Isn't that the question we always want to ask when we read the Bible? Okay, this is what it says, but what do I do with that? What does this mean to me? How am I able to be obedient to God today based on what this Word says? That, that's what we want to get to. Okay? 
So, with the Lord's help, that's where we'll go. First, the return of Christ. In the first five verses, you see it in verse 1 especially. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Zechariah is a prophet, and he is specifically pointing us to the end of the age, the return of Christ. There are things that are going to happen. Jesus is coming back again. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. He is coming back. There's going to be a tremendous battle that you may have rec- you may recognize this word. In the valley of Armageddon, at the end of the age, there will be a, a battle. James Boyce writes about this impending battle. The ending of chapter 13 talked about the destruction of two-thirds of the people and the preservation and purification of one-third. And this is consistent with what chapter 14 speaks of in verse 2, how Jerusalem will be uh, destroyed and affected. The preservation of a remnant that's in verse 5. And so in general terms, the first five verses of chapter 14 correspond with chapter 13 and also with chapter 12. There's a, a running theme at the end of this prophecy. But there's three things specifically that are taught in this first paragraph about these events. First... The passage presupposes that there's going to be a Jewish nation centered in Jerusalem in the last days. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because today, when we have the modern state of Israel, which we have, that doesn't seem like some remarkable thing, right? Because in our lifetimes, we know Israel as a state, right? But do you understand when this was written? This was written in... 500 B.C., before Jesus was born, before 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and all these things. When this was written, the thought of Jerusalem and Israel being a thing was almost unheard of because there was so much turmoil in that region. And and Israel, Jerusalem in particular, was affected. So the thousands of years that passed between this writing and, and where we are, we forget how improbable it would have seemed when this was written. And so, the idea that a Jewish nation is going to be centered in Jerusalem in this prophecy is unheard of. Second, this chapter speaks of a gathering of the nations against the Jews in Jerusalem. And we don't know what the immediate occasion of the invasion might be, but we can imagine any number of scenarios. If you think about current world politics... And how many nations are against Israel? It wouldn't be hard to imagine an, an invasion where nations of the world would gather against the Jews in Jerusalem. And third, at the height of the destruction, when the nations are dividing the spoil of the city and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are being led away into exile, God shows up to fight for His people. Do you see that in the text? God shows up. It says the Lord will go out, verse 3, and fight against the nations as when He fights on a day of battle. He'll plant His feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, I want you to think about that. Is that unheard of? Because I seem to remember the Son of God standing on the Mount of Olives. It's not much of a stretch. He's been there before. So when God shows up and the Mount of Olives is split 
and the people flee to the valley, and God is going to fight. Verse 5, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. This is not unheard of. This is a very believable, trustworthy prophecy. There's nothing maybe more natural than that the second coming of Christ would be at this place at the moment of most desperate need. Isn't that when God usually shows up? When we have a desperate need? The return of Christ. Number two, the blessing of Christ. Verse 6. There's four things in particular that are mentioned in this chapter or this uh, paragraph. Light, water, king, and city. And if you look verse by verse through uh, verse 6 to 11, you see in verses 6 and 7 this idea of light, and you think forward. If this is a prophecy moving toward the end of the age, what do we read in Revelation that is consistent with this prophecy? Now, this was written, like I said, 500 years before Christ was born. Revelation was written at the end of the first century A.D. And so, you compare these two things separated by hundreds of years. Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then in Revelation 22, verse 5, there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. There's a blessing of the presence of God that lights up the world. How about water? Verse 8, there's a mention of Living waters flowing from Jerusalem. Well, in Revelation chapter 22 and verses 1 and 2, Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God is the source of the river. He's the source of all spiritual blessings needed by the nations. So writes James Boyce. What about a king? What are we to do about a king? Verse 9. The Bible says here in verse 9 that the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day the Lord will be the only one. In His name the only one. James Boyce writes that the kingdom has come wherever the gospel is preached and men and women have responded to the message of the cross, there is the kingdom of God. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you preach the gospel, and someone responds and, and trusts in Christ, guess what? The kingdom of God has come. God's will is being done when someone repents and seeks forgiveness in Christ. That's the will of God. Isn't that what He said? The Lord's not slow in his, keeping His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to, to come to repentance. The knowledge of the truth. That, that's what God desires. So the kingdom has come. 
And yet we still continue to look for the day when Christ will have destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and everything is put underneath His feet. The light, the water, the king. What about the city? Verses 10 and 11. Isaiah had something to say about this. Isaiah chapter 65. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad, rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying. See, Isaiah wrote and showed that the outward changes in the land are symbolic of what's going to be spiritually true of the people. Evil's going to be eliminated from the city. God's going to be with His people. And salvation's going to flow like a stream out of Zion. And, and how do we know that evil's going to disappear? Because God's there. And God is holy. And God cannot have sin in His presence. So we know if God's there, the evil's going to be gone. See, one of the things I think we neglect when we think about Jesus coming back, and we all, I hope, are, are thinking about that from time to time, that Jesus is going to return. We should be preparing. We're closer today than we were yesterday. But what's that going to look like when Jesus does return? Who's He coming back for? He's coming back for His bride. What's His bride supposed to look like? Do you know why it's customary for a bride in a human earthly wedding to wear a white dress? You know what that signifies? Purity. Do you know what Jesus is looking for in a bride? He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus isn't coming back for just any old bride. He's coming back for the pure, unblemished church of God. Holiness. It's about holiness. That's the blessing of Christ. Number three is the judgment of Christ. There is judgment on those who come against God's people. And it's very, very specific. When you look at verse 12 all the way down to verse 19, look at the, the plague the Bible calls it in verse 12. The, the plague that the Lord is going to strike the people with that wage war against Jerusalem. And so when He says against Jerusalem, He's talking about these people have come against My people. And so this is what's going to be their consequence for coming against My people. There's three things. Look, look at what it says. It says it right here in verse 12. The flesh of Jerusalem's enemies will rot while they stand. You know why? Because they stood 
against God and His people. The eyes of Jerusalem's enemies will rot in their sockets. You know why? Because they looked down on God and His people. The tongues of Jerusalem's enemies will rot in their mouths. You know why? Because they spoke poorly of God and His people. Rule 39, if you happen to watch NCIS, there's no such thing as coincidence. God is specific in these places. It's not just random. Well, let's see, uh, flesh, eyeballs, tongues. Let's, let's, yeah, that'll sound good. Let's do that. No. It's, it's a particular meaning behind this. You read on. The Bible says there's going to be great panic. The Bible says that the wealth of Jerusalem's enemies will be looted. Gold, silver, garments collected. It goes on to say, if you keep reading, the animals of Jerusalem's enemies will suffer as well. It's a, it's a complete, a, a comprehensive judgment. And then it says here in the Scriptures that uh, verse 16, those who survive are going to be compelled to worship the Lord. Right. So all the, the judgment that destroys God's enemies... Anyone who survives that, they're going to be compelled to worship the Lord of hosts. It says you're going to go up year by year and observe the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the three holy days for God's people. And so you're going to be compelled to do that. But then if you refuse, the Bible says, if you refuse to worship the Lord, then you're going to have no rain. So you know what happens when you have no rain? You have no crops. You know what happens when you have no crops? You have no food. See where this is going? You have no food. You don't eat. You die. We learned this week at camp, you can survive, technically, three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Technically. Well, guess what? If there's no rain... You got no water, you got no food. Your your days are numbered. That's a judgment for not worshiping the Lord. So if the plagues weren't enough and you look around and you see, oh my goodness, all of us who were against Jerusalem, all these people are perishing and I've survived, what am I going to do now? Well, you should probably um, look into what God says. Worship the Lord. That's the judgment of Christ. So, all these things are leading to the fourth point, the holiness of Christ. And this is how the entire prophecy concludes. You've seen the return of Christ, the blessing of Christ, the judgment of Christ. But look at these last two verses. James Boyce writes that the point is that the people and the city are going to be so holy that even these little insignificant things like the bells on the horses and the bowls in the kitchen, even these little insignificant things are going to be fully dedicated to the Lord. Everything. Everything I have, everything I am is so holy because it's dedicated to the Lord. That's the consummation of all things at the end. Everyone who is 
is saved and following Christ is going to be dedicated, justified, set apart, sanctified, holy to the Lord. All of life, all of life, will have the glory and enjoyment of God as its object. So what what does that look like? Did you know there were four different references in the book of Leviticus to being holy? Specifically, this, this phrase that's repeated, Be holy, for I am holy. That's what God says to His people. You be holy, because I'm holy. And then you read again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. He who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. And it says, because as it is written, he quotes Leviticus, you be holy because I'm holy. Then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the verse I quoted to you in the introduction. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness, which that word also can be understood as sanctification, without which no one will see God. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The Bible says specifically nearly 600 years after Zechariah was given this prophecy. 600 years went by roughly until the writer of Hebrews was inspired to write that letter. And in chapter 12 and verse 14, those words, pursue peace with everyone, strive for peace with everyone, and the holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a very absolute statement. Right? No one. Not most. Not many. Not some. Not a few. No one. So, the verb, the command is pursue, strive, right? Let's break it down. What are we striving for? What are we pursuing? Peace and holiness. Striving for, pursuing. You know what, mean, you know what it means to pursue? The two most common uh, ways this word is used is in human relationships. You're pursuing... a like I pursued my wife, okay, and she finally gave up. I caught her, okay. So then, also the pursuit of like law enforcement, right? I'm in pursuit of this person, that person. They broke this law. I'm after them. I'm going to catch them. Pursuit. So, what does that signify in your mind? What picture, especially the law enforcement image? What does that show you in your mind? Is it just kind of well, I, yeah, I flip my lights on. I'm, you know, if I get them, I get them. If not, it'd be all right. I'll just, I'm gonna just lollygag down the road, and you know, if I catch them, okay. If, well, they were too fast. They just, that, that's not pursuit. You know what, running this term, running code. You know what that means in law enforcement terms? That means lights and sirens, wide open. I'm getting there. I'm gonna get them. That's pursuit. So I want you to carry that image into this text. Hebrews 12:14. Pursue 
peace. Pursue holiness, sanctification. That means with great intent and focus and energy, reckless abandon is a term I like to use. That means I'm, I'm reaching that goal. I'm going to catch what I'm pursuing. Peace. Holiness. Because what's the, what's the implication? If I don't strive for peace, if I don't strive for holiness and sanctification, sanctification this is in the progressive sense, not... Uh, and I say progressive, it's a process, because sanctification is one of those Bible words that has a double meaning. It, in one sense, it means you are set apart, consecrated for God, but it also has a process type of uh, meaning to it, where um, I'm, ho- I'm becoming more holy. I'm being sanctified. Like, I am sanctified, but I'm being sanctified. God's... You never heard this... Well, be patient, God's not done with me yet. Right? I'm being sanctified. I'm being made more holy. I say, I say it frequently, I think. Maybe you remember me saying this. My goal is to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. Tomorrow I want to be more like Jesus than I was today. That's, I'm, I'm in a process. And I've got to pursue that. Right? I can't just sit around. All right, Lord, go ahead, do what you want to do. Let me know when you're done. Because then there's no engagement, there's no cooperation, there's no pursuit. See, God pursues us, but we got to pursue Him with great intent and focus. Pursue holiness. So here's how we conclude this study and understand the application of this text to our lives. James Boyce probably said it better than I could, so I'm going to just read what he said. You, we, are not holy now. We're sinful. The more we live, the more we will be aware of it. But our destiny... His holiness. God has determined that we are to be made holy through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our destiny is to be holy like the Lord. The Bible emphasizes that which is the basis of all other experiences, holiness. I want you to listen to this very carefully. The reason why our relationship to God is not all it should be is that we're not holy. The reason why our relationships with other people are not all they should be is that we're sinful. We need holiness. We emphasize so many other things. Instead of these, we must find and fulfill God's emphasis knowing that one day Just like the Bible says in verse 20, the next to the last verse in our text, one day 
on us. It will be inscribed, holy to the Lord. On each one of us, holy to the Lord. And we will be the Lord's holy people forever. See, it won't just be on the bells of the horses. It won't just be on the pots in the kitchen. It will be on us. One day, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Holy. Do you think it's a coincidence that back in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the vision of the throne room of God, and there were uh, living creatures calling out to one another, you remember what they were saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's what He wants for us. And we have to pursue it. www.berlinchurchsc.org